Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. Immediately, they told him about her. He came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever left her. She began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought him to all who were sick or oppressed by demons. The whole city was gathered together at the door. He healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is God's word, she said. (laughs) Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So last week we talked about a very dramatic moment, and to frame it I need to just uh, flash back a little bit. So we're in the Gospel of Mark for the year, um, and Mark's Gospel is likely Peter, uh, the Apostle Peter's stories collected and told in an ancient biographical form. Um, and, And at the beginning we were introduced to John the Baptist and then to Jesus, and we heard and considered the story of Jesus's temptation in the wilderness for 40 days. And after that, we heard the story of Jesus calling his first four disciples, Andrew, Simon, whose later uh, name is changed to Peter, James, and John. And then we hear the story of a very intense day. And it began actually with what we dove into last week. So that, that began, begins a sequence of three things that happen on one particular day. So Jesus has, has taken his four new students, his disciples, to a synagogue, uh, which is similar to a church, uh, but this is a place where somebody who had kind of built up, uh, a, that there was a knowledge that they were able to teach scripture, might be able to get up and read and explain something. And Jesus uh, had that status. He was able to walk into the synagogue and read and teach from, from the scriptures. And as he did that, a man bursts into the synagogue who has an unclean spirit. And this is unexpected. This is not, um, th- this would not be allowed in the, in the synagogue. It would not be expected. And this man with the unclean spirit interrupts Jesus and challenges him. He says, I know, we know who you are. And Jesus not only uh, speaks to the man, he doesn't suggest anything to the man. He, he actually gives him a command that means to muzzle an animal forcefully. He says, shut up and get out of him. But he's speaking to the spirit in the man, not the man himself. And the spirit convulses the man and leaves the man. And then on the same day comes the rest of the story this evening. So he leaves that synagogue and is told about Simon's mother-in-law, goes to her house. And then after this healing that we just heard about um, of her fever, the whole city gathers at Simon and Andrew's house to see Jesus. This is all one day. So what would you do? Think about this. What would you do if a very reliable source, say somebody that you knew is a pretty level-headed person, they weren't really uh, you know, prone to, to fantastic stories, they weren't somebody that you thought, yeah, they're always a little bit hit or miss. What if somebody that was like that, that you trusted, came to you and said, so you know that one guy that... We've thought he's kind of crazy. He bursts into the synagogue when this guy was reading the Bible and he commanded a spirit to come out of him. And then after that, he went over to Simon's house and Simon is like, this is a smaller town. It's like somebody, you know, you know, that house down the road, you know how his mom's been sick. 
walked in there. His mom just stood up and started working around the house. I saw this today. What would you do if somebody came and said that to you? Would you be intrigued? Would you perhaps, you know, if you were invited over, would you go, right? What if you were Andrew, Simon, James, and John, new disciples of Jesus, and you just had this day? This had just happened to you. You'd, you'd signed up to be taught by somebody. You know, they kind of said, hey, I'll show you the ropes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach you what it's like to be my follower. And then you have this happen on day one. I think you'd probably tell some people. And that's what they did. They told some people. Now, wouldn't it be nice to be able to invite people that you love, that you know, that you want to have a connection with God to that that family member, friend, coworker, the one that's unconvinced or thinks the idea of God is too good to be true, how great would it be to be able to bring them over to a house and say, this man can do amazing and powerful things. Watch. How great would that be? That's what's happening on this day that we're reading about and many others that are going to be recorded in the book of Mark, that the disciples actually were able to say, look, come and see. Isn't that the the chosen's thing, right? Come and see. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, years ago, uh, I moved into a new neighborhood and was trying to kind of, I had taken my first, um, well, not my first, but one of my most full-time ministry roles, if you will, and I'd moved to a neighborhood close uh, to where I was going to work. And I, I was excited to be a new neighbor and meet the neighbors. And so one day I'm out in my front yard and, and Jim walks over. And my relationship with Jim starts off a little bit rough because he says, hey, what do you do? And it walks over, hey, what do you do? And I said, well, I work at the Salvation Army. This is where I worked. And he rolled his eyes and went, ah. And some you know, various words uh, began to pro- proceed from his mouth. Um, and, and he, you know, he's just, he goes on a diatribe. I mean, he didn't hold back. He didn't say like, well, that's interesting. I'd love to discuss that someday. He just ripped in about how uh, terrible religion is and it destroys lives and it's the worst. And, and I was like, oh, all right, Jim, all right. But I'm really glad I didn't write off Jim. Um, I got to know Jim. He and his wife started to have me over for meals, get to know me. Uh, they would... They would give me a glass of red wine and let me sit on their porch, which had a lot of mosquitoes all the time. But, um, but they were really sweet people. And I began to learn something about Jim. Jim was really angry at God. Um, and, and Jim taught me something. You don't get angry at something that doesn't matter. You don't get angry at, at an entity that you don't believe might exist. Um, And Jim proved this was true because I learned that over the years he had attempted uh, doing religion. He'd experienced some of the cults and he didn't actually view that as all bad necessarily. He, he had seen some things within those that were interesting to him, but he'd also been kind of burned. Um, And he, he had though this, this one belief that was a real hang up for him. And that is that people who believe in Jesus should be able to do the things that Jesus did. And if they can't, maybe there's no Jesus. And so he looks at the scriptures 
and sees miraculous healings and says, if there is a Jesus, you should be able to do that. Because he literally, Jesus literally said, you'll do greater things than me, which he did. Now, also, unsurprisingly, I learned that Jim was facing some significant issues with his health that he was trying to solve. He was, too, you know, trying a variety of treatment plans, home remedies, alternative medicines to deal with it. Going to the, the doctor hadn't really helped. And he was having mixed results. And he wished that this stuff would go away and he would be free from it. And he tried religious ways of getting it to go away. And it hadn't worked. He'd gone to prayer meetings. And it didn't fix anything, right? He wanted what Jesus was giving on that, that day. Uh, he, he tried to be religious enough to get it. Uh, and so far, he, he hadn't received it. So now he was done. And he was angry about it. Now, how I wish I could have said to Jim, there's a house down the road and there's a person there who's really connected to Jesus, and they can fix this. I wish I could have told him my church has like a power connection, and if you come there, you'll you'll get healed. I did pray for Jim, and as he um, as he had prayed, I also did not, you know, get him his healing. So why didn't it happen for Jim? especially when he wanted it so bad, right? Now, look, there are some uh, theological traditions I'm going to tell you about here that I think take up space on two ends of a spectrum, and some of you know about them, some of you don't. On one end, uh, where I grew up to some degree, the message was it can and will happen. If it's not happening, it's you. You are the, the you know, weak link um, if you believed enough, it would happen. God works in and for people who believe. And if you believe, uh, it will happen. Then there's the other end of the spectrum. And I've spent time in these spaces too. And they aren't willing to deny. We talked about Thomas Jefferson and his you know, rationalism last week. They're, they know they can't do that because the Bible says Jesus healed people. And they, they're committed to the Bible. They, they can't undo that. But there's this assumption that it was for a specific dispensation of time. Usually the, the time expiration is labeled as when the New Testament was completed. Um, and I have to tell you that I have fundamental issues with both of those views. I'm just I'm going to tell you why real fast. In regard to the first, I think it undermines the grace of God in significant ways. And what I mean is this, grace as defined... Um, the, the word is a word for unmerited favor. And this is how we get our eternal union with God through Jesus. It's, it's an unearned gift that God gives to us because he chooses to love us so much. And if that's how our body and soul are saved eternally, then a God who, who would give you such a great gift, the greatest of his gifts by grace, but would make you earn your physical healing that seems problematic to me. And it also skews what the Bible says significantly. Peter's mother-in-law didn't do anything. She didn't even know who Jesus, well, she, maybe she knew who he was. She didn't do anything. And this man who's delivered in the synagogue is actively not deserving it. He's attacking Jesus. Right? 
He is like, he is maybe physically attacking Jesus and Jesus delivers him. Now that's grace. The second view simply breaks its own rules of interpretation. I've been in those circles long enough to know there's, there's a rule of how you interpret the Bible. So you have an unclear verse. How, what do you do with it? You have to look to a clearer scripture to clarify it. You can't make a doctrine, a, a belief on something that's unclear. You have to have something clear within the same body of work that speaks to it and clarifies it. If you don't have that, you can make, you can speculate, but you're not allowed to say something's a doctrine. So the, these, these folks who teach that, you know, with the, new, the completion of the New Testament, the miracles stopped, usually believe in that principle too, and their belief violates the principle because the scriptures that they use to prove that are very vague and most definitely don't say miracle stopped when the New Testament was done at all. So you could talk to me about that later. I'll bring that scripture up later, um, but it, it's a problem. So I'm just gonna show you my cards and say, I don't see a reason why God would be restricted or restrict himself from doing anything supernatural. But I also think he may have good reason not to do it all the time, okay? That's something that I think is exhibited in the scriptures over and over. There seem to be periods and times when there's more supernatural activity. And sometimes we can see why when we look back. Like, think about a couple of these. Supernatural activity, what about creation itself? If God created the world, like, think about the miraculous activity and how much of it was happening in one fell swoop, it seems, right? We don't know how long it took, and it doesn't really matter that there's a flurry of activity. Another time, the Exodus, which is when God's going to bring his people out of Egypt and then he's going to deliver a covenant to them, a promise. He's gonna give them commandments to show how they can keep their end of the covenant and please him and honor him because of the gracious deliverance he's given them. Around that time, the supernatural activity like spikes. Doesn't, I mean, when you read your scriptures, it is heightened. Um, there are periods where there's very little. Uh, the intertestamental period, as we call it, which is between the last of the prophets and the book of Matthew, 400 some years that nothing really noteworthy uh, seems to occur. That's a long time. That's, you know, that'd be like your grandparents and your grand their grandparents and the grandparents before that and the grandparents before that. And maybe the grandparents before that in the ancient world, maybe even another generation would have said, we never seen anything, anything like that. Like, if that's your family story, you might have some doubts, right? And then Jesus comes on the scene, and all of a sudden, it's like a virgin's giving birth, and there's healings, and there's all this profound stuff going on, deliverances. It's pretty incredible. So there, there are these times when there seems to be a lot, and there are other times when it seems to be kind of dry. But look, um, I tried to explain that to Jim, and he did not care right? And I don't know how much, I mean, I kind of care. And so I, some of us are like, you want to get the doctrine dialed in, right? Some of us are analyzers, but some of us have pain like Jim in our body or our mind or our heart. And none of that analysis is really helpful, right? Nor was that the goal of Peter who's telling his stories to Mark. I, I do not think he was trying to say, Here's a doctrine that'll clear this up for you. So anyway, I had to talk about some of it just to prove I went to school. But, you know, now we can move on. 
So what may have Mark had in mind? Well, we get some clues from what's included in this story. So reaching back into last week, we read over and over that Jesus casting out the unclean spirit actually proved to the people who were there the authority of his teaching, right? And what loomed over that story is this question, what was he teaching, right? Because if, if they're amazed at his teaching, he starts to teach, an unclean, spirit, like spirit-filled man runs in and interrupts his teaching. He casts the demon out of that man and everybody says, wow, what kind of teaching is this? It seems to be about teaching, right? Very much so. And you're like, what is the teaching? And this event was in a very public place. Very public place. It was in the synagogue. It's like I said last week. It's as if it happened just right here in a room full of people where all kinds of people would have seen it. And there's no doubt that not only the disciples, but various onlookers spread the story around. So they probably went out from there, went to their various homes, saw people out in the streets and said, uh, you know, crazy Tim ran into the synagogue and here's what happened, right? And then we read this, that immediately, this is what we read earlier, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John, so the four new disciples, now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. This, this is almost the exact reverse of last week's story, of the synagogue story. That synagogue story was very public. This now is very private. That synagogue story is very dramatic, right? Convulsing and crying out. This is very subdued. He, he just lifts her up by the hand. That synagogue story, it's a command, like shut up and get out of him, right? This is a gentle touch. And maybe even more important, though it is subtle, is that in last week's story, the man is delivered from the unclean spirit, but does he become a disciple of Jesus? Well, yeah, we don't know. We have no idea. But here, Simon's mother-in-law immediately serves Jesus. Now, you might say, well, she was a, maybe she was just kind of a housewife, or maybe she was in the middle of dinner. But that, it seems likely. Remember, these are short, punchy stories, and every word counts. So it seems likely that the word for serve here alludes to her conversion to trusting Jesus, because this word that they use for serve is the word that will be used in the book of Mark, when Jesus teaches his disciples what it means to be great in the kingdom. Here's, uh, here's where that's recorded later in Mark, Mark 10, 42 to 45. Um, Jesus called his disciples together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Serve, this word serve is often synonymous with following Jesus. And it would seem that Simon's mother-in-law receives his healing touch, and it transforms not only her physical condition, but her spiritual condition. She shows this inner transformation that her son and his friends will learn in the future from Jesus. 
So this is where one of my stories comes into play. You're going to get, you're going to cut a couple stories here. We've got Roland queued up, so can't, can't wait for that. But here's where one of my stories comes into play. When I was a very new and young uh, follower of Jesus, I got sick. Um, I got a really bad cough. I was probably 18 years old. Um, I'm definitely 18 years old. And I, I, was, uh, I was not the type to go to the doctor, as my family today still knows. I'm a little bit hesitant uh, to do these kinds of things. And so I was like, yeah, I'll get better, I'll get better. And I kind of put it off. And weeks go by, I'm still coughing, it's getting worse. And then one day, I actually collapsed at work. So I am struggling to breathe. And my roommate was also my coworker. And he, like, we closed the store. He took me to the hospital. They admitted me. And they showed me an x-ray as I'm, so I'm on oxygen, I've got an IV, um, and they, he shows me an x-ray and he says, well, it's pneumonia is what you have. And I'm, I'm no doctor here, but I did try to check on my terms and stuff. So anyway, uh, pneumonia, and what I remember the most was him saying, um, there's very little of your lung that is unaffected. Um, like this is, you're at the point where you are, very little of your lung is not affected by this pneumonia. And so here's not my x-ray, okay? I do not have it. Um, so that's what pneumonia looks like. And I remember being shown an x-ray by the doctor with a lot of the white stuff, the cloud, the, the pneumonia. And I, I, this is my first time. So I have, um, that's the only time I've been hospitalized in my life. Um, it was the first time I'd ever been into a hospital um, like in as far as I'm a patient, and I don't know squat. So you can ask my wife, Michaela, I still don't know squat about medical things. So I married into a medical family so they could help me. Thank you, Courtney and Mary. Really appreciate it. Um, but uh, but I, I don't, I'm terrified because this is like, I've just, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what to do. I don't know how bad pneumonia is. I'm not sure I knew what pneumonia was at age 18. I really, I really don't know that I did. And so I'm scared, and this isn't the worst condition, but maybe Simon's mother-in-law's wasn't either. She had a fever. We don't really know why, but it, it had me scared. I'd passed out for the first time in my life. I'm in the hospital for the first time in my life. They put a hole in my skin for the first time in my life. I've got a mask thing on my face for the first time in my life, and I'm freaking out. So I did the thing, um, which is, and this is, you know what? So I wrote this little thing on Felix Lucero, who did the Garden of Gethsemane sculptures. It's the thing that he did when he was dying on a battlefield. And that's where you tell God, I will do whatever you want me to do. I promise. I will give you my life, right? If you help me get better and go home. And I don't know that I calculated that this was just pneumonia and maybe this wasn't the right moment for this, <laughs> but it seemed significant. So I, I prayed that prayer, okay, and I, at some point I go to sleep, um, I wake up, and there's a nurse in the room, and she says, oh, why are you here? And I said, I have pneumonia, and she looks puzzled, and she says, that's not what your x-ray shows, and I was discharged. So, okay, again, I'm not a doctor, um, and I don't have the thing, right? I don't have the x-ray. Um, but she dischar discharged me pretty much immediately, and I felt perfect. Um, so, you know, I asked my wife as we were driving to Phoenix on Friday, I said, does that sound right? You know, um, like, 
could pneumonia just clear up if they gave me the right drug that fast? She goes, no, not that fast. And, and I said, okay. So, and I wouldn't feel like perfect. She said, no. And then I asked my mom, I said, do you remember that? Like, cause I was 18, you know, and I said, you know, do you remember that? And she goes, well, all I know is like, I got a call really early in the morning that you were already out. I said, okay. So I was out really fast. Okay. Um, now at that time, I knew God heard my prayer. Seriously, I perked up in that hospital room and I was like, Jess! And then I'm like, I have to give him my life. <laughs> you know, like, ah! Um, so, I, but I knew, I was just like, okay, that, that happened, right? And, but because it was a moment like with Peter's mother-in-law, it was, it was private, right? It was me and one nurse in the evening and another nurse in the morning and I didn't discuss any of this with them. I didn't say, hey, by the way, I'm praying right now, if you could factor that in. And nor did I say to the, to the one who said clear x-ray, like, sick, that's what I was asking God for. I didn't do it. Um, I just kind of believed it, and I moved on. And then I thought about it. I was like, what, what would happen if I went and tried to find the x-ray? And it's like, well, what if there's a clear x-ray? Well, then I could, I could still talk myself out of it, because I could say, well, they messed up in the morning. Or if it's a pneumonia x-ray, I say, well, they just messed up in the evening. Like, I don't get my verification, neither do you, right? It happened in private. It's like with Simon's mother-in-law, Simon, Andrew, they're all there and they go out and tell their friends, but like prove it. I don't know, you can't. So people just trusted their word that that's what happened, right? I, I frankly have been nervous to share this story. I told uh, Jared and Cruz this because I don't, I can't, I'm not positive. I was 18, I was really freaked out. Um, and that's kind of why I asked around, and I'm like, I, I'm leaning toward, yeah. I sure believed it then. Now, I've asked God to deliver me from far worse situations since then, right? If I'd known some of the stuff that was coming in my life, I would have saved <laughs> that card. Um, but he, you know, right, no. Um, but I've asked, I've asked for far bigger things in far worse situations, and God has not given me what I've asked for sometimes. But that time, he did. Um, and, and you'll just have to take my word for that. Even my shaky word of saying I've had my, my questions about it myself, right? I don't have the x-ray. So Simon Peter via Mark tells us about an unverifiable story about his mother-in-law, kind of like mine, um, after we're told about a story that was witnessed by many, he gives, gives us one of each, a story of commanding an unclean spirit that convulses in front of a, a crowd of people, and a story of a tender lifting up by the hand, a, a story of a dramatic exorcism that ends with the man disappearing from the scene, and a story of a private healing of a mere fever that ends with a woman learning to serve like Jesus. Um, and then, after those two things, the crowds come to the house because they presumably heard about both of these events, probably from these four disciples and the people who were present at the synagogue. It was, it was the disciples' hometown. Jesus does now both of these types of things. He heals people and delivers people in front of a crowd at this point from various diseases and casting out demons and so now I'm actually going to have Roland uh, share a story that he shared with me that um, reminded me of my story. You can come on up, Roland. Um, but his was known to more people. 
um, kind of in a community. So. Yeah, when uh, Tomet and I were traveling uh, in in uh, Europe with the um, mission group that that we were with, uh, one Sunday we attended a church where we weren't we were not performing there, um, but the minister brought up kind of a show and tell uh, a teenage boy who had his arm in a sling and was kind of quietish for a teenager, but otherwise up on his feet and moving around and very capable. And the minister shared that a couple of weeks before, and, and literally just a week and a half, two and a half weeks before, uh, he had been at a prayer meeting where his mother was, and because uh, that was kind of boring, went backstage. Uh, the, the church met at a school uh, at the um, hall there, so a large uh, stage area, large backstage, and he uh, climbed up the stairs at the back uh, and fell from there. So a two-story fall onto the concrete and uh, landed on his head, which is not a good way to, uh, to break your fall. He was rushed to the local hospital while everybody else uh, continued praying. And... Uh, after taking x-rays and CAT scans and whatever else, the, the local hospital realized that they were way out of their depth and had a medevac to a major hospital that would be able to handle the extent of the trauma they'd found. When he got to the major hospital, about the first thing they needed to do was uh, redo a full set of tests because the x-rays and CAT scans that they had didn't reflect how fast he was healing. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the fact that he, after a major head tra a trauma, he was back on his feet that quickly was uh, what was really wonderful for, for all of us to be able to see. Thank you. So yeah, when Roland was sharing that with me, again, they were encouraged and that community was encouraged, but this is something that um, this whole community had kind of known had happened, right? There are people are at the prayer meeting and then you see like he's walking around. This is, this is shocking, right? And, um, and, and, I, and I know, I just want to acknowledge here that many other young people have had accidents and their families have pleaded with God for healing and for whatever reason, right? They are not. So this isn't like a, a story to say, here's what will happen to you. But what we're saying is that miraculous things do happen. And when they do, they point us to a promise from God. And that's the final detail we have to consider from this story from Mark. And, it, and it's a critical detail uh, that is easily missed. I mentioned earlier that this was an intense day, a very full day. But what day was it? Does anyone remember from last week? It was the Sabbath. It was the day of rest. This is why our verse ends at sundown, because at sundown, the people felt free to bring people to Jesus and put Jesus to work. Um. This is very significant. It's a detail that's clearly there on purpose, and it changes everything. 
We learn later that Jesus will be accused of breaking the Sabbath for healing someone, and that's not even as intensive a day as this was. So if Jesus is the Son of God, as, and as he said many times, has no intention of doing away with God's law, then why in the world would he do the most work of his new ministry with his new disciples in tow on the day God established at creation and reaffirmed, as the kids just, just mentioned, in the Ten Commandments that we ought not to work? Why would he deliver Simon's mother-in-law on the Sabbath and then allow her to start serving him, which she was not supposed to do, on the Sabbath? He had Simon's mother-in-law do what all the people, all the crowds knew they couldn't do, which is why they waited until sundown to bring all of their sick and their demon-possessed. We'll actually be looking at some of these moments in a couple weeks, but I just want to show you, Jesus, this is a theme in the book of Mark. Jesus gets in trouble on the Sabbath. That could be the subtitle, you know, the gospel of Mark, Jesus gets in trouble on the Sabbath. Here's another one, Mark 2, 23 to 28. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. As they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? You're not even allowed to take a little head of grain, right? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? And he and those who were with him, they entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which by the way, off limits to everybody, um, which is not lawful uh, for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. And the answer was, yeah, they had read that. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, but not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, flash forward a, a, just a little bit further in chapter three. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. So they're like, this is a, this is like kind of a pattern with you, bro so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to him, is it lawful, to them, sorry, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to kill? They were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored and the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians, which is the, the Jewish leaders who are in league with the Roman structure. Uh, they held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So Peter and Mark know, and they're making a point as, as Peter and Mark sit down to write this, this gospel, they know that the Sabbath is a thing. And they know that Jesus gets in trouble on the Sabbath. And they know that this story on the Sabbath is significant. So why? Why is this point so important? And why is Jesus doing what he's doing on the Sabbath? Why is he causing such upheaval, right? What's the point of the Sabbath? And now you're thinking, Andy, I showed up to this because I saw that you were going to talk about healing in the email and you snookered us into talking about the Sabbath. 
You're right. <laughs> the original Sabbath day, of course, is the seventh day in the creation narrative. It's the seventh movement of creation in which God observes everything he's made and he declares that it was good, which means that it was rightly ordered. Cruz and Jared and I have been talking about this a lot at the missional training center. And it was the way it was supposed to be. And he sat back and he rested as he observed the orderliness and the perfection of everything that he'd made. God built this in, by the way, before there ever was an Israel. We, we heard that from the kids that the Sabbath was one of the Ten Commandments, but it even goes back before that. It's one of the earliest commands to God's people. Way back when creation was in order, the Sabbath was declared. It actually wasn't just to curb sin. It was given to us before the fall. And it's a glimpse that tells us what we were made for, to look at everything that God has made, how orderly it is, and to bask in it and to declare the goodness of it. It's reiterated in the Ten Commandments because it's a glimpse forward to the day when creation is returned back into its orderly state and things are the way that they're supposed to be again. Which is why Mark, right after Jesus' baptism and temptation and the four new disciples, disciples shows us this incredibly active Sabbath day that seems to be breaking the rules because it's so not breaking the rules. It's doing exactly what the Sabbath was made for. It's giving them this window into what it's going to be like when the curse lifts, when things are back the way that they're supposed to be, when fevers don't ruin your life, when broken bones and pneumonia don't ruin your life, when demon possession isn't a thing, when the darkness is gone. It means that the reordering has begun. Now you could say what, Good does that do for people of all the other towns of the world outside of Capernaum, where all the people who missed it? Or let's magnify the question, just drive it a little deeper. What do Jesus' healings and all that, Matt, you know, and, and for that matter, his death and resurrection have to do with God's people who tried to follow the rules but never had a chance to see and trust Jesus before he came? What does that mean for any of those of us who have begged for a clear x-ray and didn't get it? Well, just as the Sabbath day in our experience has only given us a little bit of rest, a taste, if we're even able to calm our minds down enough to feel it. How have you, you know, Christians been doing this first day of the week thing? Have you rested today? Have you spent 24 hours contemplating how God's putting everything back in order? And how good it is. Louis wins. Um, I have not. Um, the Sabbath idea gives us a little rest. My clear x-ray, the boys improving health, give us a little faith and hope. And then we get sick again and go through pain and we die. See, these things would be worthless in and of themselves. But all of these miraculous works of Jesus are previews of something we're waiting for. They're previews that say, 
It's coming. The darkness is lifting. The sickness isn't winning. Death doesn't have the last say. Earlier, I referenced a a view about miraculous acts that misrepresented a scripture, and now I'm going to bring that scripture in, not to critique those folks, but to show you what it is about. Paul here is discussing love, and he's talking to the Corinthian church who've been getting quite obsessed with the impressive, potential, miraculous things they could do as Christians, that they might be able to um, communicate in another language by God's power, that they might be able to speak a word that would encourage somebody about what was going to happen in the future. And he is saying to them, be careful with that, because if it's not infused with love, and I, sh- I would say, I think he's saying love for God and love for others, it's actually not even good for you. And as he's saying that, he goes on, he says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues or other languages, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, We prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And this is where the the misinterpretation makes this about the New Testament canon. And that's just not it, unfortunately. Paul goes on to say this. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. He's... He's saying, this is a comparison. Now, here's another one. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then when the perfect comes, I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. What's so unfortunate about pressing that scripture to explain that miracles stopped when the canon of scripture was finished is that it draws our attention away from a far greater and more clarifying point. The point of Paul's words were to teach that if you get obsessed with the supernatural stuff for its own sake to just get healed, to get a word of prophecy so you can calm your anxiety about the future, to speak in another language so you can prove that you have a lot of faith. If you do that, you've entirely missed the point. In fact, you'll become self-focused and unloving in your spirituality. This is true of any of God's good gifts, friendship, family, adventure, community, church, the Sabbath itself, the Bible itself. You could take any of these and try to use them for yourself to show your righteousness, to hammer somebody over the head and show them their unrighteousness, uh, or just to feel better. And they can become an idol to you and they become completely spoiled. But when they point to the kingdom of God, when they are previews or foretastes of what it will be like to be eternally known and to know God eternally, then even in their imperfection, we can be grateful for them. Imperfection, I mean that they don't solve the ultimate problem. We can receive a clean x-ray as a gift pointing to our hope that can encourage our souls. And we don't have to get one every time, right? We can receive a good day with a loved one as a gift and not have to have a good day with them every day to prove that God loves us. We can receive a restful worship service as a gift 
and not need to have every time we show up for worship be profound, right? We can marvel at a message that's clearly from God when he just speaks into our lives and be okay with all the times when we aren't sure. This is why God doesn't give us the ultimate now because the faith is in the waiting. So he gives us previews from time to time in his wisdom to encourage us when we need it. And we should ask. We should. We should totally ask. The best part about my story is how foolishly I asked. That's actually the best part. The asking, see, is a deeply formative practice, even more than the receiving, because it's training our hearts to hope and long for the day when the darkness lifts. When my dad was in the hospital with his terminal cancer, um, we prayed many times that God would heal him. Um, and one day in the hospital, we prayed with him. We were praying, you know, separately for him. I, in my mind, he, he had a good 15, 20 years left. Um, but, it, you know, it wasn't happening so far. And one day in the hospital, right toward, before they put him in the hospice, um, I came in. I said, Dad, what are you praying for? these days. And he, he kind of had the tubes up his nose and he was struggling to talk. His mouth was real dry, but he kind of eked out, come Lord Jesus. And it wasn't long after that, we lay his body in the ground, but he wasn't there. Right. That was one of the clearest things. Abby, Abby and I've reflected on this and, and Michaela too. He wasn't there. You see these bodies, you know, Michaela sees in the hospital all the time. The person isn't there. They're with the Lord. And now he's waiting without the pain for the same thing that we're waiting for, right? For the Sabbath. The Sabbath that all Sabbaths pointed to, to the day when God breaks in and restores our broken cosmos, to the day when our bodies transform like Jesus's resurrected body to the day when we all sit back and look at the world, our friends and our families and reflect on how orderly it all is and how perfect it is. The way we look back and say, or look back at the way it was, but we look at what we're actually sitting in and say, that's how it's supposed to be. That's what it was like when God created it. The imperfect simply points to the perfect. So you've heard about my neighbor, Jim, who wanted, wanted healing, right? He heard my story of asking kind of foolishly and God granting a, a simple and private um, healing for me. You heard Roland's story of an incredible mercy that encouraged a whole community, including those who were visiting one day. And you heard my dad's story of us all asking, but finally looking to Jesus and just calling out for him, himself. So are two of these encounters and the other two aren't? Are three of these encounters with God and the one isn't? What was Mark wanting us to see? Mark wanted us to see that the Lord of the Sabbath has come. He can and will give us a taste of the ultimate Sabbath. He knows when and why to do it and when and why not to, really. 
But no matter what, God is and always has been pointing to the ultimate Sabbath. Before Jesus, God's people looked forward to it. They sacrificed and they rested and they looked forward in anticipation of something that was coming and experienced his mighty acts in their midst from time to time. When Jesus was here, he gave people tastes and experiences in person. What an amazing time. And today we look back at when the Lord of the Sabbath was here and what he did. And from time to time, he gives us these foretastes in his wisdom when we ask. And sometimes, probably like that possessed man, when we're mad at him. I don't know what happened with Jim. He's moved to Pennsylvania. Um, but I'm glad I stuck in there with him. Because sometimes I wonder if he's just going to rail at Jesus until one day Jesus delivers him. I sure hope so. The Sabbath is coming. We still, as people seeking Jesus, follow Mark's lead. Um, Mark had, had shown us on this first Sabbath of full of activity that people, when they heard about this Jesus, they came from near and far to the house where Jesus did his miracles to see the work of the Lord of the Sabbath. And as Christians, we come to Jesus's table every week on the day that he rose from the dead, signaling the Sabbath is becoming our, our eternal reality. On the night he was betrayed, they remembered a unique time of supernatural activity, the Exodus. And he pointed to the keystone moment within that time of, of supernatural activity that they were amidst. He, he was telling them about that, sat, about that deliverance from Egypt as they sat around that table. And then he foretold what was going to happen to him. He took the bread from the table, bread that would have reminded them of when God had manna fall down from heaven to feed them in the middle of the wilderness. And he says, this is my body broken for you. He took the wine from the table, the wine that they knew they used at all of their celebrations, their feasts and their weddings. And he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of many. And they started to think about the sacrificial system. And everything that happened on the day of atonement and on the Sabbath, right? And he says, but I will not partake of this again until I drink it anew with you in my kingdom when you experience what the Sabbath has been pointing to all along. Friends, we are invited to his table to remember that he defeated death and that the Sabbath that's always been anticipated still stands before us. Every one of us that has a story of healing and deliverance and the goodness of God, you've been given tastes of what this, what this means. And this is a moment of encouraging your faith to actually touch and taste the goodness and the grace of Jesus. What's happening next here is that I'm going to pray for us briefly and leave two minutes of silence for you just to pray, to reflect, to confess, to ask God for faith to ask him to remind you of the goodness um, in, his in your life, to ask him to remind you of when you've tasted the Sabbath that's to come 
and just to remind your soul that it's true, okay? Um, we're going to worship in that way. After, after we pray, we're going to come forward and receive the Lord's Supper together. Who, who is the Lord's Supper for? Um, look, I, I don't know where you're at in your Christian life. Maybe you've received, you know, this message of grace and it's sunk in for you. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you're like Peter's mother who just needs some encouragement. Maybe you're like the demon-possessed man who needs Jesus to break you free. If you're willing to come to Jesus, he welcomes you. We always give at this time here at Mission. This is a critical part of our worship. It's, uh, it's saying to God, everything that I have is yours. I honor you with even the, the money that I pay my rent with. It's, I give it to you. I trust you with it. It's an investment in telling the world about this Sabbath that remains in front of us. But we are also um, going to sing because this is a good way to lift our hearts, to let these truths sink down within us. But this is an exhibition of the hope that we have, that we're crying out, waiting for the day when we all fill the new Jerusalem with our voices, every tribe, tongue, nation, people, and language. So I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll leave two minutes of silence for you to pray. Father, I'm... I'm encouraged to remember the stories of your healing in my life. We are encouraged to hear the story of this young man whose life was spared after his fall that Roland and Timet got to uh, participate in and hear about in this church. I know of so many other stories in this church of moments of illumination and just tastes of your goodness, but I'm also so aware of all of the cries of our hearts that feel like they've gone unanswered. God, I pray that you would speak to our souls. Help us to see when it is something that we just want for ourselves. Help us to see when we're truly like longing after you and we're hoping that this healing or wisdom or whatever is going to give us what we want when the truth is we just need to know that you are with us. But God, some of us are just so deeply in pain, whether it's physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Give us the boldness to ask for a taste. Lead us now as we pray.